You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. My name is Rick Kleffel, and welcome to Fine Print. Today, we're talking to Ramsey Campbell, the British writer of psychological and supernatural horror. He's the author of 29 novels, 17 short story collections, and the editor of 17 anthologies. His latest novels are The Pact of the Fathers from Tor, an absorbing thriller about parents and children and a woman who uncovers her father's sinister past, The Darkest Part of the Woods from the famous British small press publisher P.S. Publishing, and Tor has recently released his latest short story collection, Ghosts and Grizzly Things, and his latest anthology is Meddling with Ghosts. Welcome to Fine Print, Ramsey. Hi, Rick. Nice to meet you. With all these projects, it's no wonder you're a horror writer. Presumably in the time when you're not sleeping, you're writing. But you've also been writing since quite an early age. Could you tell us why you started writing, what you first wrote, and how you sold it? Gee, that's, that's several, several questions all at once, but all right. The very first thing I wrote, and we're going back before I was published, actually, um, was back when I was 11, 11 years old, I actually did a complete uh, collection of short stories. I mean, they were really very short, but they did have some pretension toward narrative continuity and narrative closure. Uh, a book called Ghostly Tales, and um, it was written in, you know, pen, and it was illustrated in crayon, and so little did I know that I actually sent off this object, the only copy thereof, to various publishers in Britain, uh, who, who duly returned it, as well you can imagine. Uh, the, the, only, the only line I would like to quote from it, to give you some uh, indication of its prose style, was that was well, a sentence that runs, the door banged open and the aforementioned skeleton rushed in. But I'll tell you what, I got one very encouraging letter from Tom Boardman Jr., who, who ran one of the very few British publishers then in the 50s doing science fiction in hardcover. And he, he wrote back saying, basically, we do not publish ghost stories, so we have to return this. But, uh, you know, given your age, we, we feel you have every chance of making the grade if you keep at it. So these were fighting words to an 11-year-old. Three years passed, and um, I, I discovered H.P. Lovecraft in a big way. I mean, I'd been reading him for, for quite a few years in anthologies, but this was the first book of his work I ever discovered, a book called Cry Horror, which you know, contained some of his very finest stuff, like The Colour Out of Space, and, and frankly, some of his worst, like, like The Moon Bog. But the fact remains that you know, I was able to read a whole wadge of Lovecraft in a single day. I just took the day off school, frankly, and pleaded sick, and sat at home and read this from cover to cover. And I tell you, I mean, I was not, not merely was I convinced that this was the greatest horror fiction I'd ever read, but I actually thought this is the greatest fiction I'd ever read. Well, you know, I was 14 years old, so it was a bit over the top. But nevertheless, I knew this is what I wanted to do, and I wanted to repay some of the pleasure that, the, that I'd gained from this. And so I set out to do it very, very slavishly, very imitatively. I mean, to the extent that even though I'd never been more than maybe 20 miles from Liverpool in England, um, I, I was writing stuff set in Massachusetts. And by gum did it show that I'd never <laughs> been to Massachusetts, particularly when the rustics opened their mouths. Um, okay, nevertheless, I sent this off to August Derleth at Arkham House, which was then Lovecraft's publisher, and of course, you know, also basically a publisher that specialised in horror fiction, a one-man show run, run by August Derleth. And uh, this sent me back a letter. I mean, all I really wanted was some comment. I didn't, you know, it was not, please publish my unpublished book. But he sent me back a huge, well, very, very substantial uh, double-spaced, uh, uh, I beg your pardon, well, he sent me back a, a very substantial single-spaced uh, two-page A4 editorial letter telling me exactly what was wrong with the book, which was a very considerable amount. Uh, and, and, however, saying that if I was prepared to do all this work, then he saw this as being maybe a potential Arkham House book. Well, you know, at 15, that was uh, that was pretty heady stuff, and and you you may well imagine that I went ahead and I and I and I, and I did all the work he felt I should, including transferring all the stuff to England. Um, and inventing a kind of Seven Valley setting, uh, which was, was was a kind of English equivalent to Lovecraft's uh, Arkham setting, and and basically getting the characters to talk to each other, which they hadn't done previously, and 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 basically modernising the narrative technique. So you know, even at this very early stage, I was learning, and the most important thing of all, I think, was that I had a very a very good forthright editorial input very early in my career, and you can get nothing better than that. Boy, that's fantastic. So at 15, you were already getting seriously considered for publishing. When was that published? 
Well, the, the first story was when I was uh, 16, so that was back in 62. Uh, however, it's worth saying that uh, I sent this to Durth because he, he was doing a new anthology of, of all new fiction. He actually said, you know, did I have something in my rewrites that, that maybe he could look at with the view to publishing it? I sent him a story which was then called The Tomb Herd, and you, you can understand why he changed the title to The Church in High Street. Um, and he sent me back a letter saying, basically, uh, if, if I was prepared to let him have uh, an editorial free reign over the story, then he was prepared to buy it. Now, I mean, I wouldn't, obviously, these days, you know, you, you should never let an editor go, go full tilt at your story without any comeback. But nevertheless, again, it, it meant that I was going to be published in this book, which turned out to be alongside, you know, people like Robert Block and H. Russell Makefield and so on. So that was, that was temptation enough. Um, and so I said, okay, and signed the contract. And he did do a lot of very necessary revision, um, particularly in terms of, 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 of concentrating the, the narrative more. Now, there were things that I would have done differently, but nevertheless, the point was clearly he felt that it was the best way to show me how to do it was to do it himself. And uh, uh, having, having been inspired by this example, I then did go ahead and rewrite the other stories that I'd done so far and wrote a, about as many again to bulk out a complete book. And those were very considerably technically better than the ones I'd first sent to him. Uh, and in fact, he didn't see the need to, to make any major editorial changes when he got the rest uh, of them. And so he published his first book of mine. And here I was, 18 years old, an Arkham House writer. Wow. Have a look back. Uh, and that book was The Inhabitant of the Lake? Exactly. Now, um, Arkham House is surely an important name in American horror publishing. Could you tell us a bit about who they are and their importance to you as both a reader and a writer? Well, yeah. I mean, they were set up by by August Earth and also his friend Donald Wondry back in 1939, specifically to publish the first hardcover collection of Lovecraft's short stories, The Outsider and Others, which contained, well, what certainly they saw most of the best of Lovecraft's work. Uh, along came a second volume pretty soon after to, 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 to publish the rest of the work. And from that, Durleth then began to see it, I think, as a, as, as a publisher for hardcover publication of other writers, who'd, particularly those who contributed to Weird Tales magazine, which was you know, a pulp of the 20s and 30s and all the way into the 50s. So he, he, he did the first book publication of people like Robert E. Howard, Clark Aston Smith, Robert Block, Ray Bradbury had his first book. Indeed, you know, it's, it's interesting that Durleth actually specialised for quite a while in doing the first hardcover collection of, of quite a variety of writers. I mean, if I had to choose one apart from Lovecraft, it would be my, my personal... Uh, uh, essential Arkham House writer it would be Fritz Leiber uh, with, with Knight's Black Agents which was his first book and again an Arkham House book and, and crucial I think to the development of the modern horror story because it not merely does it set it in, a, in, in the big modern city first Chicago and later San Francisco but also whereas you know in, in the past that sort of setting would be invaded by the supernatural in Fritz's case Crucially, the supernatural comes out of the setting. It's an aspect of, of, of modern urban existence. I think that's one of the key turning points of the, the modern supernatural horror story. So anyway, I mean, Arkham House basically is, is, has been going now since, well, since, uh, since the very late 30s, and it's still going. I mean, it's now I think, uh, I believe it is returning to its, 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 its um, trawling of the pulp magazine. So apparently we're going to see more, more, more pulp writers back into hardcover from Arkham House quite soon. Oh, that sounds fantastic. Now, the 80s were uh, known as a heyday for horror. Could you talk about how that burst of popularity affected your writing? Well, it affected it in terms of publications without any question, although really, um, you know, I'd started writing, having, having done short stories and been published with short stories since the early 60s, I didn't actually do a novel until the mid-70s, and it was several years of writing novels before uh, you know, I struck anything like, uh, well, I don't even say gold, but at least, you know, some, some kind of relatively not base metal. Um, I, and again, you're absolutely right, it was the early 80s, a book called The Parasite, actually, um, which took off for me. I mean, frankly, I think it's my worst novel. Uh, it's, it's very much a kind of, you know, a, a novel into which all sorts of supernatural elements are more or less shoehorned. I think there's just a few too many, you know. I, I like bits of the book, but nevertheless, it was certainly the kind of big, fl sort of flashy supernatural extravaganza that was selling well in those days. And it, it did enable me to, to feel secure as a writer and, and from then on really to write the kind of thing that I wanted to write and, and, and develop what I was trying to do. But I mean, the, the, that boom was obviously very important. Uh, on the other hand, there's no question whatsoever that far too much was being published. You know, I mean, every publisher wanted their, their six horror titles a month and there just are not that many 
to go around that are any good. Right. Now, um, horror was split into two factions during the 80s. One faction took some of the extremes we saw in Clive Barker's The Books of Blood even further, and these writers called themselves splatterpunks in response to science fiction's cyberpunks. You, on the other hand, were an avatar of so-called quiet horror. Could you talk about what happens when a genre experiences this kind of explosion of invention and schizophrenia? Well, I, th I think to be honest, it's more a phase that it went through, and this kind of you know face-off was 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 really a bit of a false uh, dichotomy. I mean, that there always have been writers. Uh, I know, actually, I think I'm one of them who, who you know, when when the occasion demands, you you, you write very suggestively and 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 write a show just enough to suggest far far worse, actually, or something far larger than you can you can actually directly show. But on the other hand, if you need to write, you know, graphic violence for the purpose of the story, then you do that too. I mean, look as far back for heaven's sake as Poe. You know, on the one hand, you have you know very visionary stuff like the Fall of the House of Usher, but equally you have stuff which, for the time, is really pretty grim, like say the Black cat, which is you know, mutilation of animals for heaven's sake. You know, it's, it doesn't mess about. Uh, you know, even even Clive Barker, in a way, um, although certainly you know he made his name initially with very graphic stuff, um, but graphic stuff which seems to be to 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 be imaginatively vital rather than you know graphic stuff which is really a sort of regurgitation of of, of, of details of the page as kind of a substitute for imagination. I mean, Clive Clive Clive, Clive is one of the imaginative breed, but nevertheless, even even he. You know, quite early on, was was getting subtler. I mean, stuff like after. I mean, you know, in the hills, the cities is not a it's not a it's not a graphically violent story. It's a it's a graphic in the sense of extremely painterly and and visionary. This huge image, which you probably could could convey either in a painting or in prose. But that that's not quite the same thing as 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 the as I'm afraid far too many of the the bunch, not necessarily the splatterpunks, but that that whole movement in the 80s and 90s. There, there seemed to be all uh, any number of writers whose whose sole aim was to try and outdo one another in, in terms of how disgusting they could get. And that just isn't interesting. It's not good art. That's, that's what's wrong with it. Right. Now, you published several novels and some short story collections with Santa Cruz-based Screen Press, helmed by Jeff Connor. How did this venture come about? Well, now, the first thing I'm writing to say I'm sure that Jeff ever published was a collection, um, far, far too belated, really, Dennis Etchison's first hardcover collection, which was The Dark Country. And he, he actually, we, we met at a convention here um, shortly before he did that, that book. And, and I, to be honest, I cannot now remember what city it was in because these, these do tend to, to merge in my old senile memory after a while. But okay, certainly... Um, he said he was going to do this book, and, and he asked me to do an introduction to the dark country, which I duly did once we'd met. And I, it, it, I, I, I'm not absolutely certain who it was. It may have been J.K. Potter who illustrated the dark country in all my screen press books as well. It was certainly somebody who suggested to him that um, rather, what he actually wanted to do was a short story collection of mine. Um, what, I, what it may have been my suggestion was that uh, he ought to do the first hardcover edition of The Face That Must Die, which was um, my second novel. Um, which all my publishers who had done the first one, almost almost to a, to a man or woman, said was far too grim to publish. And it was this classic thing of, you know, there are no sympathetic characters. Well, as far as I'm concerned, there don't have to be any sympathetic characters in a work of fiction. I'm, I'm with uh, Nabokov on that. All they need to do is be interesting, you know? Sure. I mean, it's, it's the quality of the prose that I want to read, not whether I can identify comfortably with the characters. In some ways, I think fiction is a very good place to meet people you'd ordinarily cross the street to avoid or the city to avoid, you know? Um, so, I mean, The Face of Must Die had been published in Britain in a, in a paperback original eventually in the late 70s, but I, I'd, I'd lost so much faith in it that I'd actually cut bits out of it because I thought that they slowed the narrative down. Um, and I decided that what would be good would be to do, you know, a restored, complete version of the thing. And Jeff, uh, to his eternal credit, uh, felt that this was a good idea and that the book should be given, you know, its chance uh, the way I'd written it. And, and J.K. Potter more than rose to the occasion with, with some of the more deranged images of, of his career, I think. And that, so that book probably was published in the early 80s and, and did get quite a reputation for itself. Eventually went into paperback, and years later, I was in an American airport, it may have been Atlanta, and I saw a wire stand in the, uh, one of the airport bookstores full of copies of The Face That Must Die. I would not want to sit on a, on a long-haul flight next to somebody reading that book, let me tell you. <laughs> now, you've also collaborated with J.K. Potter on a couple of other 
um, works. Uh, could you tell us about writing your novel, The Influence, which is certainly one of my favorites, and the collaborative effort that you and Mr. Potter made on that novel? Well, sadly, I mean, it never came ultimately to uh, to precisely what we wanted it to come to. I mean, that was going to be my last, uh, or my latest, I should say, rather, screen press book. It had been published in Britain uh, in 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 the. I mean, it had been written and published, but but uh, Jeff Connor very much wanted to do an illustrated limited edition, and uh, I, uh, J.K.E. came to stay with us in in Liverpool, and. He and I and uh, my daughter, uh, who was in many ways the the little girl in the book, uh, went to the various locations I'd used in it, uh, all the way from North Wales to to Liverpool, which are actually uh, you can see one from each each from the other across the bay, but but it's a, it takes a very much longer time to to get from one point to the other by road, which is one of the the keys to the book, in fact. And and he, he shot her in all sorts of locations and 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 made her into this ghostly figure in very subtle ways. I, mean, I think it's some of J.K.'s subtlest work, and he was he was convinced that he'd he'd, um, he'd 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 reached a new side to himself by by doing these images. But sadly, not long after that, uh, Screen Press imploded. Um, it, it's unclear why. I mean, perhaps it was just so 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 luxury a press that it couldn't quite sustain its own expenses, and so the book never appeared. Uh, not not this limited edition. However, luckily the Nearly all the images that J.K. made uh, do appear in his collection, Horripilations, which is you know a big a big British collection of his art. So you can still see my daughter at oh I think ten years old in in, in a variety of spectral situations. Now, um, what you've written a huge number of short stories. What uh, takes some ideas into the novel length format while others remain as short stories? Well, for me, it's purely instinctive. I mean, I, I, I basically there are there are as you as you quite correctly say there are novel ideas and there are short story ideas and and, the, and I think one of the crucial things is to develop an instinct for which is which and not to try and and you know write write a bloated short story and pretend it's a novel. But equally, you know, you you can't you you, you don't want to take a novel idea and do it less than justice by reducing it to the the length of a short story. Um, I, I honestly don't know. I mean, I've never really known exactly what the difference is. I think I think it, it has to be simply the one that generates the most narrative ideas. I mean, in 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 my early days, I would I would plot a novel completely, and I'd actually write 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 a notebook full of ideas, and then I would index them by by the chapters they would appear in, having plotted the thing in advance. But these days I don't. These days I just gather as much uh, as many ideas really as 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 the thing appears to be capable of generating. I suppose it's that actually that ultimately decides for me which is going to be. If, 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 the, if the number of ideas it's generating go beyond a certain point, it's very clearly going to be a novel, or at the very least a novella, of which I've done, well, one, one good one, I think. We're here with Fine Print with Ramsey Campbell. Ramsey, from the beginning, your novels and short stories have demonstrated a very precise and economical use of language. Each word that you write seems carefully chosen to convey a specific tone and image. Could you talk about how you developed your prose style? Well, uh, with, with, with great difficulty is probably the immediate answer. Uh, I mean, certainly initially by imitating Lovecraft, uh, his prose and his use of, uh, particularly of adjectives, I'm afraid, which is, is something, luckily, I, I, I was, I was uh, teased away from by August Derleth quite early on. Um, the, the really, I suppose, I, I began to develop what I recognise as my own something like my own style. Um, when I was a, a, in my latish teens, when having read all the classics of horror, um, I began to read, or, or began much more thoroughly to read. Uh, in the mainstream, and, 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 and particular favourite writers most certainly had an influence. Uh, two of whom, I suppose, would be Graham Greene, still an enormous favourite, and perhaps my, my all-time favourite 20th century writer, Nabokov. Uh, I mean, Lolita was, a, was, a, was an enormous revelation to me of just how much more you could do with prose than, than, than simply use the, the, the very legitimate Poe technique of, 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 of um, organising everything toward the single effect. I mean, I think it seems to me there's so much more fun you can have with prose, and this was what, what Nabokov, not only Lolita, but Pale Fire and, and, and Real Life of Sebastian Knight and many another novel demonstrated to me. And this is what I now wanted to do. So 
basically I fell in love with prose and frankly I don't give you not in love with prose you've no you've no business writing at all as far as I'm concerned um, and yeah it's 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 just basically trying to find new ways to say things maybe to say familiar things or to if, if there's one uh, ambition I have whatever I'm writing is to is to try and make you which is to say me as well as anybody look again at things we've taken for granted I think that's one of the things that the prose ought to be about to, to use familiar language in a new way and actually the older I get the longer it takes but it still seems to be, to be worth doing now even your most overtly supernatural stories have a real deep and resonant psychological basis could you talk about the part that human psychology plays in all your stories well, as you say, very, 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 very crucial. Um, I suppose if I had to, to, to sum it up, it would be that in my stuff, um, the, the supernatural element, in, the, in those stories where it is supernatural, because, because there are quite a few that are not, particularly the novels, half a dozen of them have no supernatural element. But in, in those that do, it's fair to say, I think, that the the supernatural element is 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 some kind of is, is often a projection of something about the character, the the protagonist uh, that they've suppressed or don't want to admit to themselves, and that, that, that it's kind of a of a distorting mirror out there which is holding them up to themselves. But I think what's crucial for me is that the psychological element can't be used to explain away the supernatural. It's, it still has some sort of ambiguously objective existence at the very least. That's now that's very interesting. Your um, fiction revolves a lot around relationships between parents and children, and children themselves are recurrent themes in your fiction, and you yourself are a parent. Could you talk about how the parent, as a writer, feels about terrorizing the children who are his characters? Well, I think it's fundamentally uh, the, 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 the fear of the parent that's feeding into my stuff from a very, you know, from a very uh, early on, when, my, when, my, when my, my children were very young. It's, it is the terror of what might happen to them. Uh, it's, it's an additional layer of terror uh, that, that's been in my stuff for, I suppose, the last couple of decades. But, I mean, funnily enough, even, even much earlier than that, I mean, a decade or more before I was ever a, a parent or even probably married, uh, there's an old story of mine called The Scar, where this notion of the vulnerability of children first surfaces, uh, where, you know, these, these two children are being ter terrorised in some unspecified but clearly very nasty way by someone who is substituted for their father and are, are taken back by a, a would-be helpful neighbour who feels, you know, parents have absolute rights over their children and whatever does, whatever happens next door is fine by him and he, he won't intervene. And I think this this recurs throughout my stuff. I mean, there's a, there's a relatively recent novel, The, the Last Voice, they hear where the, um, the, the the psychotic at the centre of things has kidnapped his brother's little boy and realises that however badly he behaves to this kid in public, uh, people are simply going to think he's a parent because this is the way parents do behave in public and, and they don't feel that they can really intervene. Now that actually seems to me to, to have an edge of terror that, um, that, certainly, that certainly makes me uneasy and you know that, that, that is the sort of thing that, that basically tends to resurface in my stuff. But there's also, obviously, that you know, increasingly in some of the later novels, there's, there's a whole t fear that the parent, i.e. me, uh, might turn into a monster in some way. It's the, you know, it's the terror, terror of the tensions within the family kind of emerging through me, which is why, for instance, you know, the, the father in Nazareth Hill becomes increasingly monstrous as the whole thing progresses. That's, that's really me, me, me looking askance at myself. Ramsey, you like to focus on the murkiest, most indecipherable areas of human thoughts, the parts of people's personalities that they least want to acknowledge. Is trying to name the unnameable what brings you to write? Well, it's one of the things I don't doubt because I suppose it's you know I I believe the horror should be about that that level of of human experience you know I don't, it's it's something that it shouldn't shy away from that's for sure and yeah there is there is quite a lot of my stuff ever since well let's let's say the face that must die from from the late 70s where where um, almost nobody wanted to publish it so that's 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 getting pretty damn dark I agree um, however that's having said that I mean that's not all I want to do I mean I'm I'm very much uh, of, of of the school that wants to try and reach for something beyond you know in terms of the supernatural to to, to, to reach for something uh, we, we, well, Lovecraft would have called it cosmic terror, you know. Uh, Blackwood, I suspect, more something like the awesome. 
uh, Macken, the you know the ineffable, whatever. Um, my 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 favourite work in the field, you know, the thing that the stuff I re return to again and again as a reader um, w would be those stories that actually do do deal with something larger than they can directly show. I mean, the colour out of space with Lovecraft, the willows with Blackwood, the the, the white people with Macken. Um, there's a superb, I mean, I, I often come back to this quote, um, I've, I mean, I've quoted it myself in, in print, but it's always worth reminding people of it. There's, there was a Canadian critic called David Aylward, um, who, oh, some years ago now it would be, uh, in, in, a, in a small and a sadly no longer with us magazine called Borderlands, wrote, wrote, wrote a, an essay about supernatural fiction. And he said, and I think I'm, let me see if I can quote this verbatim, his quote was that, uh, writers of supernatural fiction uh, who used to strive for awe and achieve only fear now strive for fear and achieve only disgust. I mean, I think it's a bit of an oversimplification, but nevertheless, I certainly see his point. And that's, you know, where I would like to see the, the field return to, this, this striving for awe. And I think you can see it in, in quite a few writers. I suppose if, I, if I had to cite a single uh, contemporary, it would be Thomas Ligotti, who seems to me to have a quite extraordinary kind of um, sense of, the, of, of the, um, the, the, the large supernatural, and, uh, um, which, which again, you know, he can only hint at in, in these remarkably enigmatic in these remarkably enigmatic narratives. Um, if, if there's one modern master you know, I'd love to emulate, there's, uh, there's Ligotti for you. This concept of awe and the outside brings to bear the relationship of horror to science fiction. Did you ever try to write science fiction yourself? Well, I did um, briefly and stumblingly in the in the early 70s, largely because I'd, I'd just just then gone full time as a writer, a, a, a remarkably ill-judged ploy. But my wife was teaching full time, which is the only way I managed to to keep afloat. Uh, and, and in fact, horror was really not selling very much at all in the early 70s, certainly not in terms of short stories. And so my agent actually encouraged me to have a go at some science fiction. The problem was that I, for whatever reason, when I tried science fiction my style seized up and became dreadfully stiff and pompous um, I think because I was overawed by this genre that I didn't feel quite part of and it's only very occasional when I've managed to trick myself into writing something akin to science fiction I mean for instance there's a story called um, no story in it, which is kind of set nominally in the future, rather in the same way actually that uh, Martin Amos's London Fields appears to be set very slightly in the future, in this kind of, you know, uh, d d desert, this arid um, urban civilization, which isn't quite where we are yet, but where we appear to be going. And, and having played that trick on myself, I, I did manage to write what turns out to be a kind of science fiction story, but, what, but dealing with, you know, um, adventures on other worlds. No, I, I really can't do that. I, I, I don't have the technique. Your horror incorporates a lot of very sly humor. Could you talk about your use of humor? Because it's so intertwined in your fiction. It's hard to pull out, but it's clearly there. Well, I mean, yes, I absolutely agree with you, but I think it's because, you know, I actually feel that horror and comedy have, have many things in common. I mean, it, it, for instance, I think both are, are ways of talking about taboo subjects in ways that, that, that the audience can find approachable. Um, and there are other things, too. I think they both, they're both uh, at their best, depend very much on timing, it occurs to me, you know. Um, but, but as well as that, there is this whole sense, I think, that, you know, the grotesque, um, it is is smack in the middle of, of of horror and and the comic, and it can either it can slide in, into into either area very very quickly. But what what tends to happen in my stuff is more that the two overlap. But I think it's probably because I suppose I see you know life as a bit of a grotesque comedy anyway more often than not. Uh, there's also the additional thing that if you know if I weren't doing this, what I'd probably most like to do would be a stand-up comedian. But uh, I, you know, I, uh, I, I think my impression is that people who do comedy tend to end up more depressed than horror writers. So I think I'm probably fine where I am. Now, horror fiction seems to bloom in repressive times. Could you talk about how horror helps us discuss the undiscussable and engage in dialogue about subjects that might not otherwise be acceptable in polite conversation? Well, I mean, I, I suspect that that's no longer quite so true because the mainstream has become so 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 um, liberated, you know, that that, that uh, in a sense you you don't need horror to do it. But then I think that's partly I would I would argue that 
horror is actually or was part of the mainstream for a long time. I, mean, I think that it, it, it's a, it's a, it's a little unfortunate to see it as being some sort of hived off genre, uh, whereas in fact it did come out of basically. Um, from certainly from the Gothic novel onward, it, it, it comes out of just not not so much generic writing at its best, but but just out of writers trying to deal with these these particular themes. I mean, it's worth remembering, I think, that uh, a, a lot of the most memorable fiction in the field from the certainly from from the the nineteenth century. Um, and, and yes, indeed, later than that to some extent, uh, is, is by people who didn't specialise in the field. I mean, there, there are many remarkable stories which, which are re-anthologised, which are written by people who, who were mainstream writers. And often, as Robert Aikman pointed out, they're remembered more for those stories than for maybe the hundreds of others uh, which are not, not horror fiction that they wrote also. What this proves, I have no idea. That were all, horrors a part of everything. <laughs> I think that's right. One of your more memorable novels to me was The One Safe Place. It's about Americans who moved to the UK hoping to escape the gun and violence culture endemic to the USA, but it doesn't work out that way. It doesn't. No, that's absolutely right, because in fact they discover that Britain is, is, is just, well, it's basically going the way America has gone, but, but perhaps with even less control, because, you know, whereas in, in America, at least, I suppose, if you want to own a gun, you can, uh, legitimately. In Britain, it's, it tends to be only the, the criminal fraternity who've got the gun, so uh, as, as these unfortunate Americans discover, there's not much of a defence they, they can put up. Um, what was... I think what was interesting to me about that book was the way that it developed. I mean, initially the idea was that the, the American academic family should discover that having, having antagonized one relatively petty criminal, they then turned out to be up against an entire criminal clan, um, not, not least the, the latest generation, which is a 12-year-old boy who, who becomes in some ways the, well, very much the antagonist of the 12-year-old American boy of the American family. Um, in my, my initial notion of the book was that they, the reader would discover uh, at the same pace as the characters that there were, there were more out there than they ever suspected. But when I thought about it, I, I decided I really wanted to talk about these things from both sides and to show the, the, the criminal 12-year-old in the process of becoming what he's going to become and why he does. And because of that, I think we, you know, I had to sacrifice some suspense and, and surprise at the very least, but I think the, the gains were considerable. So, I mean, I'm glad I basically show a lot of, of, of scenes through, through that boy's eyes, just about as many, I suppose, as I do through, through the other characters' eyes. And, of course, we, we end up realising that they're a lot closer in disturbing ways than, than we might like to think. Well, this comes back to the idea of characters who are, quote, sympathetic, mm. the requirement, because in that novel you did an excellent job at making characters who might, at first glance to an editor or, or an unschooled reader, think, wow, that's not a very sympathetic character, I don't want to read about them, but you've managed to go out there by detailing them keeping them from being just a cipher. Well, I think that's the point. I think what, what interests me to do with, with characters like that, with, with any characters really, particularly the ones who, I, who, who feel least like me, is get inside them and look out through their eyes. I think that's the point of, of, of whenever I try and write, you know, is, to, is, to, is to show the, the thing from the viewpoint of the monster or the, or the, the other, you know, the, the, the character is excluded. I mean, I, I always used to feel that um, for me, a much more interesting way of doing The Exorcist, if it were possible to do it that way, I don't know, but I would have, if I'd been writing that, I probably would have wanted to show it from the viewpoint of the little girl who was being possessed, not, not allow us just to watch her uh, from the outside. And in a way, I suppose it could be said that that's what the influence was trying to do, that, that that's why we're there in the sense that you know the little girl is, well, actually she's not so much possessed as influenced, admittedly, but I think this, that's basically what the ambition of that book was. That novel was far more terrifying to me than The Exorcist ever was. I found it much more disturbing to that internal threat rather than the external threat. What part does research play in your writing? Well, it would depend. I mean, some some not a whole lot, but but others. I mean, apart from research, is a lot of fun. Um, 
Well, let me let me give you, a, for instance, I suppose there's The Hungry Moon, which is a, a mid-80s novel of mine. It's a big, again, I, as far as I'm concerned, there's just too much in that. It's it's a it's a bit of a, a of a sort of um, you know a, a lucky bag of a novel, basically. There's just a few too many themes trying to get out. In fact, the the several novels that follow that seem to be the books that it, it, that was trying to be in various ways, and they each get the a novel to themselves later on. So you know, you've got the comic novel, you've got the you've got the influence about about you know the art a kind of notion of the afterlife that, that makes sense to me as an agnostic and you and you then get The Count of Eleven which is an out and out comic novel which we may come to later on but in, in, in The Hungry Moon what I was trying to do what, what the, the notion basically I wanted to do was um, a druidic survival out in the Peak District in England where in fact you know there were there was a lot of druidic activity in the in, in the early centuries of uh, in the yes in the early centuries uh, AD and um, I, I invented a legend to go with um, some of the local customs. And having invented the legend, I then went looking for um, existing folk myths that I could use as you know, a supposed background to what I'd invented. And what, what I really found kind of unnerving was how many things that were already in existence I could then quote as having apparently uh, had a bearing on what I had myself invented, which I suppose simply means in a way that, um, you know, however nonsensical the stuff is that you invent, if you, you, you can find apparent um, stuff to back it up. And you know that's probably one of the reasons why I wanted the the book to 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 be, to be apparent as an attack on gullibility, which is one thing that scare me. In the 1990s, your novels took on a very psychological tone. Have you ma- finally managed to, as the memorably named Edna Stumpf, what suggested, <laughs> ring all the Lovecraft out of your typewriter? I certainly hope not. No, <laughs> and in fact, I don't think I have at all. And indeed, uh, having done three three non supernatural books back to back in 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 the late 90s. Um, I then came right back to where I believe my roots to be in this novel, The Darkest Part of the Woods, which is out you know, later in, in, in America, it's in, from PS Publishing in Britain now, will be out late this year from tour. Um, and that was really one more attempt on my part to do the kind of supernatural fiction that I most like uh, at novel length, and I think that is basically a Lovecraftian novel. I think it's an attempt to do that sense of the, you know, the cosmic and the the terrifying, which 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 reaches that pitch of of alienness and awe that I always loved most about Lovecraft and other writers similar to him. And for the moment, anyway, that that's that's the book that does more of what I would like a supernatural novel of mine to do than any other. But now I'm in the midst of a new one, so, you know, we'll have to see how that goes now. So your new novel is going to be another a novel of the supernatural? Yeah, it's a book called The Overnight, which is, um, well, I'll tell you, it's, it's to some extent based on the fact that, or draws upon the fact that a couple of years ago, um, I, 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 was, I was doing sufficiently badly that I, I took a job in Borders Bookshop in, uh, near me in Liverpool uh, when they opened a the branch there, um, which was fun. It was a lot of fun. And it was, and, uh, it was as, as my friend Poppy Z. Bright said, it was nice to get out of the house, you know, and we spent too much time in there in, in our various different cities. But um, it, 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 it suddenly became apparent to me that here was a novel. So, you know, I hadn't gone in there to get this job in order to research a book. But by the time I came out of it, it was several months, having, you know, now got back on a financial even keel, it was apparent that here I did have a novel um, which, which could which could do the sort of thing that uh, I've often done in short stories, but not so much in novels, which is to use this very very ordinary uh, everyday background, as Fritz Leiber would do, as as some kind of a source of the supernatural. So um, this book is 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 set almost entirely in this big branch of a new of a new American chain in Britain. Um, and I think probably when I finish rewriting it, which is a considerable uh, process I'm going through just now, probably at least the last third will take place during a, a single night, which is when things really begin to surface in, the, in, in, in all sorts of different and disturbing ways. We're here with Ramsey Campbell on fine print. The British science fiction world is positively blooming. Has the success of science fiction writers brought up the interest in the horror genre? In Britain, no, not really at all, oh. actually. Uh, no, it's, it's, it's interesting to me that in many ways, certainly in Britain, 
things are exactly the same as they were when I came into the field in the well early to mid fifties when I really started reading in it. Uh, the the you would find you know the the it would be the accredited classics were keep being reprinted and, and bestsellers which weren't necessarily classics but there were not very many of those. Uh, the, there was the occasional anthology that would surface. There would be the occasional novel published in the field, but it would usually be published not as horror fiction. So you back in those days the haunting of Hill House and and, and various other occasional books and the, the whole thing was being kept alive mainly by small presses I mean back then as now Arkham House back then people like Gnome Press now it's well in Britain it's PS publishing which is unusual because back then we didn't really have a, a small press in Britain that specialized in in horror fantasy and science fiction but now it seems to me that it, it's 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 making a very considerable name for itself but it's one of the very few publishers in Britain that will publish horror at the moment um, I suspect this is just a phase that the whole thing goes through and eventually and maybe pretty soon there will be another kind of upsurge but um, well I'm old enough and, and, and I don't know maybe stayed or calm enough whatever you want to call it uh, to, to wait until that happens again meanwhile all I can do is carry on doing the best I can now, a lot of your work has your novels of the mid-90s, starting with The Count of Eleven, The One Safe Place, The, ha the Last Voice They Hear, Silent Children, Pact of the Fathers. Those took a turn away from the supernatural. Could you talk about how you made that turn? Well, I made it now. I made it without really knowing I was going to. Is the is the is the short and honest answer. In fact, uh, the process is a bit more complicated. Um, in in the uh, just the very beginning of the decade, I wrote a book called Midnight Sun, which was my attempt to do uh, a, a, a novel of supernatural terror with no uh, threat of physical violence, never mind any actual physical violence, just to see if I could do it, and also because it's one the kind of supernatural fiction I most like. And it, it was extraordinarily difficult to do. I mean, very very difficult to write. Uh, I, I finished it, and by which time I'd been invited to do an, a novella for a series of novellas that were being published by a British publisher in the early 90s. That would be the legend novellas? Exactly so, and my, my contribution was a, a tale called Needing Ghosts, and it was quite extraordinary. I mean, in, in a way, I think Needing Ghosts can be, can be seen as a kind of dark twin or dark relative of Midnight Sun. I mean, again, you've got this sense of the, the writer central to it and, and the effect he has on his family, but it's very considerably more grotesque uh, and bizarre. And what happened with, with, with Needing Ghosts, much to my astonishment, was that after about four days into the narrative, the first thing that happened was it became much stranger than, than I was anticipating. It, it, it took a much more bizarre turn, a much more dreamlike turn. And all I felt I could do was follow it. You know, either it was a, a, a question of trying to wrench it back where I thought it would, where, uh, I'd originally planned for it to go, or just follow it in its own strange trajectory, which was what I chose to do. And I found myself—I mean, uniquely in my experience—I wish I could do it again. But at least it proves that even that late in my career, I could do it. Uh, it was a question not so much of, go, of, of thinking what to write next, just going up to my workroom every day to discover what was going to happen next, and, and with absolute fascination and glee. You know, trying to get this stuff out as quickly as possible because there was such a torrent of, of inventiveness coming from I, I have absolutely no idea where but possibly out of the, the fact I had to tamp myself down very considerably to write Midnight Sun and so it became apparent you know I, I had suddenly discovered a full-fledged comic element to myself a very grotesque and black comedy but nevertheless that's what it was now following it immediately that was the count of 11 which originally was going to be well still is in a way my plan was to do the opposite of the face that must die which in this case to write about a serial killer who was you know highly sympathetic the sort of person you and I might very well you know be happy to imagine ourselves as being but somehow to write a story in which somebody like ourselves is pushed over the edge and turns into this this, this raving psychotic who commits several terrible acts but what wasn't apparent to me until I began to write The Count of Eleven and became very obvious early on was that it was turning into a comic novel. And again, I thought, well, what on earth do I do now? Do I, do I follow this? And yes, it seemed to me that if that's what it wanted to be, that was what it was going to have to be. And that still remains one of my favourites, actually, The Count of Eleven. That's one of one of my earliest things, or earlier things, that I can still read with, with some pleasure. There was one British review that said, uh, if Stan Laurel had been a serial killer, this might have been the story, and I took that as a great compliment. Recently, you've worked with Peter Crowther's PS Publishing. 
Tell us about your nonfiction collection, probably, and a little bit more about where Peter Crowder came from. How did he come to create this whole publishing empire he now has? Well, yeah, publishing empire is right, or I certainly think it ought to be, and it probably will be before we know it. Uh, I think what happened with Peter is simply that, you know, he, he, he didn't see enough being published of the kind of thing that he wanted to read, and so he decided in, in, in the great you know, tradition of gentlemen publishers uh, that he was going to do it himself. Initially, he tried publishing several novellas as, as slim volumes, individual volumes that were then collected by a mainstream publisher and, and published, I think, four to, four to a book. Um, from then, he decided he was going to do novels as well, and he did My Darkest Part of the Woods. From there, he, he moved on or, or, or branched out still further. Uh, into non-fiction. He, he did, uh, as you say, he did my Ramsey Campbell probably, which is, you know, a, a big fat collection of pretty well all the non-fiction of mine that I would like to see in permanent form up to date. Uh, he's now doing several more non-fiction books by other people, in fact. But no, it seems to me he's one of the most vigorous forces in, in British publishing in the field at the moment, and not only British either. I think he's very, very much a name to be reckoned with. Now, you've edited many anthologies, most recently Meddling with Ghosts, a collection of stories in the style of M.R. James. He's probably most familiar to Americans as the author of the story Casting the Runes, upon which Jacques Tournay based Curse of the Demon. He plays an important part in the literature of horror. I think not just important, but probably crucial, actually. I mean, one of my purposes in doing meddling with ghosts was to put him into some kind of a context to show the kind of supernatural fiction he was coming out of, but equally, you know, how much he changed the field. Now, some folks see the, 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 the Jamesian characteristics as being the story about uh, uh, basically, you know, academics, more, more, more usually an antiquarian who, who finds an old book or, or some old object which has a, some kind of a supernatural influence or, or, or more correctly, it has something attaching to it that, that comes to get you whenever, you, uh, whenever, whenever you're um, ill-advised enough to, to, to take this thing into your house. I mean, crucially, there's... A, there's um, I said, well, I suppose the famous one is Oh Whistle, I'll Come to You, My Lad, where it's the, the whistle that, that calls up this dreadful thing that rises up on the bed next to you at, late at night. Um, but it's, it's this, I think, for me, more, more than the, the background element in James, it's, it's, it's this extraordinary talent for the, the glancing image of terror, um, the, the phrase that can, can convey more supernatural dread in, in just a few words than, than, than most writers can do in a sentence or a paragraph. And you've read it almost before you realize what you've read. Um, the, the one that always haunted my childhood, actually, was the, the treasure of Abbot Thomas, where, where somebody who has, has found what appears to be a leather bag full of treasure down a well pulls it onto his chest in the dark and has it put its arms around his neck, um, something that I, I did my very best to try and forget about for weeks afterwards as I was trying to get to sleep. And I think it's that that genius for showing just enough to suggest far worse that, that, that is James's great uh, bequest to the field. And people like, say, Fritz Leiber uh, crucially learned from James as well as from Lovecraft. And in fact, it's, it's, it's this, I think this whole sense of, of the, the, the everyday, the, the mundane, suddenly being dislocated and torn apart or, or breached by, by, not necessarily by ghosts, but something very much more alien and, and horrible. Um, that, that has a lot of surrealist quality, I think, in, in The Best of James. And I think you know, he's, 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 he was an absolute master, and his influence really is still being felt. What does it take to bring you to an anthology? Do you originate the ideas behind your anthologies? Does a publisher bring them to you? It would depend sometimes one, sometimes the other. Meddling with Ghosts, funnily enough, was, was a notion I think that's already been proposed by the British Library who, who published it by someone who worked there. And then they decided that, um, you know, that I wouldn't be a bad choice to, to, to do it. In fact, I'd, I'd just recently written them an introduction to a, a bibliography of, of English supernatural fiction, and that, I think, was what, what decided them that they should ask me to do or, or, or edit this book, which was already partly compiled as well. And it was you know, certainly I'd, I, something I'd... I'd long wanted to do and um, was very glad to do. But other things, I mean, you know, back in the, oh, some years ago now, I did a book called Fine Frights, which was basically just, well, the subtitle was Stories That Scared Me, and that was exactly what it was supposed to be, some stuff that had particularly got to me that I wanted to, um, to bring back into print and inflict upon other people. Why should I be alone with it?
Could you talk about your experience of reading? Do you get much time to read? What kind of fiction do you select to read? Well, sadly, you know, I, I don't read nearly as much these days as I used to, although I actually do read run a, a reader's group in, in that Borders bookshop that I used to work in. I still go there every month and, you know, organise a, a discussion of whatever we read that particular month. Well, recently, for instance, I very much like The Corrections, the Jonathan Franzen book, which I thought was great, great, uh, very tasty, vigorous prose, you know, very inventive piece of work. It reminded me a little bit of, the, of Nabokov, the sort of pleasure I got from him. Um, I mean, David Lodge I'm very fond of, Kingsley Amis, English comic novels and American too to some extent, uh, particularly favourite things of mine. But, you know, I do try and read as widely as I can in my, my own field, wherever I can find it. I suppose my, my, my favourite novel in the field these past few years would be would certainly be House of Leaves, which I thought was profoundly disturbing, and uh, the more one thought about it, the, the, the scarier it got, and it seemed to me that um, the experimental form of it worked absolutely right. What else could you recommend for readers who want to start on darker fiction, classic or contemporary or both? Or? Well, I think it would have to be both. I mean, um, off the top of my head, uh, you should get, you know, the best of Poe, which is easily done, uh, the best of Arthur Macken, there's great tales, of, there's um, his tales of horror and the supernatural. Uh, Algernon Blackwood is absolutely crucial, and there's a very fine Dover Press collection of his, edited by Everett Bleeler, which I think is the best the best by far. Uh, Grove Press also do two very good collections of Sheridan Le Fanu. Um, M.R. James, well, the collected ghost stories, Fritz Leiber, um, Knight's Black Agent, Shadows with Eyes, or any, any good collection of, of Leiber's supernatural fiction. Uh, Robert Aikman, certainly, if he, if there was a recent small press British collection of all his short stories, sadly still not as well known by any means as they ought to be. Um, Thomas Ligotti, most definitely, Clive Barker, The Books of Blood, for a, a real taste of, 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 of visceral, very inventive, imaginative horror. Poppy Z. Bright for very fine lyrical horror, I mean, of a, of a kind that's very much more difficult to describe and to experience, but the, the simultaneously beautiful and, and, and terrifying and gruesome in a way that I, can't, I don't know really anybody else being. Um, Thomas Ligotti for that, that, that extraordinary enigmatic cosmic quality. Ted Klein, who wants to be writing far more than he is. Kim Newman, very inventive, witty, uh, almost postmodern horror writer. And I'm sure there must be as many again, but, you know, uh, we could be here all day and I'd still be recommending them to you. Thank you very much. We've been talking with Ramsey Campbell, author of Supernatural and Psychological Horror Fiction. Thank you, Ramsey. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.